so yesterday I provided you the intervention of prominent Italian professor on Vatican II, Professor Enrico Maria Rodelli. Well, now I have his second intervention where he expounds on his support for Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano and his take on the Second Vatican Council. And like the first one, it's colorful. So enjoy. Letters from Babylon. I say, the direction that faith must hold. The dogmatic constitution, Pastor Ternus, establishes, quote, When the Roman pontiff speaks ex cathedra, that is, when in the exercise of his office as shepherd and teacher of all Christians, in virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine concerning faith or morals to be held by the whole church. He possesses by the divine assistance promised to him in Blessed Peter, that infallibility which the divine Redeemer willed his church to enjoy in defining doctrine concerning faith or morals. Therefore, such definitions of the Roman pontiff are of themselves, and not by the constant consent of the church, irreformable. In True and False Theology, How to Distinguish the Authentic Science of Faith from an Equivocal Religious Philosophy, Monsignor Antonio Livi, former professor of logics and gnosiology and twice dean of the Faculty of Philosophy at the Pontifical Lateran University, to which he invited me to supplement during three years his courses with my lessons of formal gnosiology, points out two decisive notions, which are basic for faith. Here they are. The first, the highest degree of pretension of truth is essential for Christian faith. And the second, the dogmatic character is neither an accidental aspect nor an ideological superstructure of Christianity. The counterline, the Second Vatican Council, an unwritten story by Professor Roberto de Mattei, points out that the primate of Belgium, uh, Cardinal Suenens, Archbishop of uh, Br Br Bruxelles and a major figure of the council, launched the keyword, the pastoral council. The council should be, par excellence, a pastoral council. John XXIII followed in the direction drawn by Suenens in the speech he pronounced on 11 September 1962, a month before the opening of the council. The pastoral form turned itself into the form of magisterium par excellence. The conclusion, then, is for the first time in history, an ecumenical council, the Second Vatican Council, doesn't use the highest degree of magisterium with which the preceding twenty councils presided by a pope had been opened. In this way, for the first time in history, the pretension of truth required by the dogmatic character of Christian faith is eluded. Now, whether or not there is a link between one the essentiality for faith of the highest degree of the pretension of truth, or two, the fact that the ability to fulfill such a pretension is given exclusively by the dogmatic degree, and three, Satan's smoke, that Paul VI in 1970 discovered and denounced with extreme grief to have made its way in great quantity in the temple of God, which is the church. I let the readers to guess. Just saying. Postscript. Oh, and I almost forgot. He has almost annihilated the church and orphaned the world. If this is not a maxi-snare, then what is it? Of course, Father Skillebex's words tend to perplex us. We tell it diplomatically, but after the council we will draw the implicit conclusions. He said, in the other words, we express ourselves in a duplicitous diplomatic way. That's so that our concepts may seem to be Catholic to the Catholics, and at the same time allow us, who fixed a certain goal for ourselves to use a necessary degree of vagueness. However, when the council will be over, we will draw the implicit conclusions that please ourselves and that indeed we had planned. Such a Machiavelli thought had been intercepted and published by Romano Emerio in 1984. See 
Iota Unum. Thousands of copies of this book have been sold throughout all the world. However, it hasn't surely been the only instrument that signaled the ignominious thought of the Dominican, which was well in fact spread since 1965 in all the ganglions of the church, at all levels. By contrast, the truths of pastoral magisterium do need an interpretation. Let us clarify, however, that we are not talking about the pastoral magisterium used since the Second Vatican Council, but rather about the pastoral magisterium per se, which has nothing to do with the former, because it is not corroded by the modernist acid, how we shall soon see. Pastoral magisterium is per se as necessary to the church as dogmatic magisterium, on which it depends. The church cannot do without it. A precise relationship with their precise hierarchy strongly vinculates the two spheres between them. The magisterium that we call pastoral has the task to define, show, teach, and implement those truths that, although they are connected to the dogma, don't own the characteristics of infallibility and indefectibility that must be believed de fide. They can be found in four different categories. One, the theological results of the dogmatic truths, e.g. the catechism of the Catholic Church. Two, the canonizations established according to canonical norms. Three, the liturgical and disciplinary legislation which obliged the universal church, e.g. the Institutio Generalis Massali Romanum and the Code of Canon Law. And four, the approval of religious orders and congregations. As we can see by their intrinsic qualities, these four categories develop and evolve in a in history and are then, by their own nature, subjected to modifications, improvements, clarifications, although always in one precise and rigorous direction, a direction rigorously held in all 2,000 years of history of the magisterium of the Church, with a strict, meticulous, and extremely faithful logical and theological connection to the specific eternal truths from which they emanate, in such a way that every possible doubt, misunderstanding, misleading, interpretation can be rapidly and solicitously solved or clarified, judged, and if need be, eliminated. The unparalleled Bernard Bartman clarifies the problem of the irreformability of the connected truths of the ecclesiastical faith. Quote, the church, he explains, infallibly teaches Christian morals and easily acknowledges whether the rules of a religious order are in accordance with it or not. However, she isn't infallible when she judges the exterior appropriateness of those rules, so that she may formulate a new judgment. Thus, the church cannot be mistaken when she judges on worship, on liturgical books, on the particular duties of certain states, celibacy, brevery, or on the general disciplinary prescriptions, fasting, holiday rest, institutions, and suppression of holidays. In those matters, it is not possible for her to order and approve anything contrary to moral law, but her judgment on these formulae is neither infallible nor an immutable truth. On the contrary, it is possible for her to create, at another time, better, more comprehensive, and incisive formula, in order to express the same defined truths. Compare, for example, the formula of the, sec of the Council of Chalcedon to those of the Council of Ephesus, the symbol of the apostles uh, with that of Athanasius. A classic example of the reformability and of the sim simultaneous deep and rigorous care used in order to guarantee that the reform is performed with the highest degree of purity, so that in the Church in her widest universality, and that salvation of each soul may receive the most fertile graces, is the reform of the breviary followed in 1536 by Pope Paul III, rejected, rejected with a rescript in 1558 by Paul IV, and finally prescribed only ten years later by St. Paul the St. Pius V. With this example, we want to demonstrate how such things are the most important witness in liturgical history of the priority attributed to the organic development of liturgy, 
over the approval of the competent authority. The prudential judgment with which Paul III promulgated this reform in 1536 was an error eventually corrected 32 years later by the fifth pope after him, because of the evident insatisfaction of the faithful and at the request of the scholars. The direction to be held in the pastoral teaching and acts on the truths connected to the dogma had been abandoned with unwilling imprudence, but has been eventually recovered by virtue of the suggestion of a holy pope. The direction to be held is indicated by the monk St. Vincent of Larens in such a precise way that it has been adopted by the dogmatic constitution de filius at the end of chapter 4. The four categories of truth are tightly connected to the dogma by the divine side and to the history by the human side. It is precisely because of this connection to the world that they cannot be per se directly infallible and indefectible, but rather all the popes of the church under whose rule they have found the proper way to develop strive to make them obey in the most rigorous, logical, rational, and theological relationship a univocal link that possesses the highest moral commitment, supported in that by a theology which is deeply and willingly immersed in a sound metaphysical atmosphere, an atmosphere that, as it is taught by the last great exponents of the Roman school, Monsignor Gherardini and Monsignor Levy, has always represented the most insuperable barrier even against the least historicist, that is to say modernist, that is heretical, infiltration. Such infiltration represents today the hardest and most challenging archenemy of Catholic doctrine, as it is demonstrated by the recent conceded lecturings pronounced by ex ex extemporary theologians such as Francisco Arzillo and the likes, or as the obstinately innovator, thus heretical cardinals hidden under fake conservative clothes such as Walter Brandmuller and the likes. After having thus exposed the direction always held and followed by the Church, let us now start il illustrating the counter-direction elaborated and followed by the modernists since the Second Vatican Council. Pastoral Magisterium after the Second Vatican Council Since the Second Vatican Council, we witness, by contrast, a completely different attitude. As we said, what would be an objective limitation of the truths formulated and taught with pastoral magisterium turns itself into a breach, an opportunity, a potentiality which, even though those truths are connected to the dogma and are so tightly bound by the moral link identif identified by St. Vincent of Laren so well that it is even included in a dogmatic constitution such as Defilius in the hands of the modernist turns those truths into Trojan horse, to a stratagem, into the picklock used to penetrate into the great gate tower of the church. Let's call it like that, into the sanctum sanctorum of the evangelical doctrine. In order to seize it and after having conquered it in such a surreptitious way, Rebuild it piece by piece at one's own convenience, that is, according to one's own deceitful modernistic intentions, but without letting anybody notice such extremely shrewd ruse. Indeed, one who is ever going to notice those armies of solicitous workers, disguised not only as bishops, cardinals, prefects, and popes, but also as monsignors, scholars, parish priests, theologians, who claim to be very simple but very committed to the faithful will erect with the most placid, friendly, lovely, inclusive, and engaging methods stones made of paper, rocks made of plastic, pillars made of cottonwood instead of the rightful, solid, and well-squared stones chiseled around the rock of the cornerstone mentioned in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20. After having been unleashed by the conciliar aggiornamento, every kind of dilettantism will be deemed acceptable, provided that it doesn't propose arguments or reasonings or logical deductions and inductions but rather only seductions based on suggestive, authoritative arguments, like the Nouvelle Theologie, on reassuring goals of universal pacification, 
Esimerio, De Mate, Garadini, Guarini, Livy, Maza, Pasqualucci, Spotifora, Vasallo, and myself point out in dozens of books, articles, courses, roundtables, and conferences. In the hands of Cardinal Swinnens, Pope Roncalli, and all the neoterics who still follow them, the, the fallibility and the possible defectiveness, which allowed by the impossibility for those degrees of truth to be enunciated, the highest degree of entelechy of magisterium, which is given exclusively by a papal locusio ex cathedra, are no longer instruments that require from those who use them the highest moral and intellectual commitment in order to make every teaching and every act with which each time the peregrine church keeps up with peoples and nations, centuries and languages, science and knowledge, adhere to the truth in every single point, but rather a fulgurant, splendid, dazzling split to accomplish the culture of meeting, that culture of dialogue, which will allow them to finally fulfill the dream of all the fake, placid, the fake, peaceful, and the utterly hypocrite, meek ones of the world, who are actually only willing to be let in peace. In other words, after the denial of the basic, distinctive, and abysmal out-out, which has always divided the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ as it has been taught by the Church from every other religious notion and fantasy, including both the monotheism of redacted and the monotheism of redacted, including the many Protestant hereticalities, the goal to make friends with everyone and to especially try to become no one's enemy, in general, a soft, smooth, et, et, et scheme belonging to a continuum of approximation toward God of which the church would just be the final stage, is pursued. Magisterium, form, language, and heresies. Romano Amerio was the first one to notice the existence of a device that counterfeited doctrine in a deceitful way described by Father Skillibux. First, in Iota Unum, paragraph 14, he writes, the law of historical conservation of the church, through which the church isn't lost in the event that she doesn't match the truth, but rather in the event that she loses the truth, emphasis authors. Then, in paragraphs 330, 330 to 331, he illustrated the first rudimentary uh, rudiments of the method utilized by the modernist neoterics precisely using that law. Let us mismatch the relationship between church and truth so that we reach our goals and the church isn't lost. She doesn't die completely. What remains of the Lord's commandment when he says to us, Let your yes mean yes, and your no mean yo, no. Anything more is from the evil one. See Matthew chapter 5, verse 37. Do great hermeneutes such as Arzio, Brandmuller, Ratzinger, O'Malley, Skillebex, et al. still acknowledge this commandment that they persistently misinterpret? Do they acknowledge at least the reason why it is so imperative? The reason why there is the divine need to be blunt, neat, and clear. Anything more is from the evil one. Thus, it can, it can be understood, the issue is language and the dis discipline on which the Professor Livy made me teach my courses, formal nociology, allows me no other to approach the heart of the shady device, as after all the Jesuit Father O'Malley did affirming categorically, the Second Vatican Council is a linguistic event. The difference lays in the fact that the Jesuit exalts the language of the Council as a theological apotheosis, while the writer, by contrast, in his The Future, Terrible or Radiant, points out in 250 pages the infinite snares and tricks used by the Novator to reach the goal of saying without saying, that is, as it is pointed out by Amerio, to hide under the clothes of a general truth a partial counter-truth not clearly expressed. This scheme is abundantly illustrated in my aforementioned essay. Did any of those who frown at my severe words with regard to the popes of the council ever read it? Did they ever ponder it and then find arguments 
which could demonstrate with neat clarity the fallacy of minds, which are contained in that pa in pages since seven years ago and have been then retaken and signaled again in my successive works, in every single one of them, works that I don't enumerate in order to provide to anybody further pretext to laugh at the auto-quotes to which the desert that surrounds me forces me to. However, if nobody besides me takes into account, either for or against it, the philosophical, metaphysical, and theological horizon through which I achieve the point to denounce the mega-snare enabled by the aforementioned popes, and when I say nobody, I mean not even those who I consider very close to me in faith. I don't mention anybody only in charity towards all. What should the most miserable Catholic faithful ever do if he has not the opportunity to quote anybody, but does not wish to remain alone in faith? At the same time, I try to alert his fellow believers, those who are far from the faith, the pastors, the very same heretics, and if possible, the whole church. The equivocal language well is illustrated by Father Skillebeck's allowed, thanks to its amnesia and to its all, all of its ambiguities, at least seven serious and deep heretical elements to penetrate into the church. I define them as such in order not to mistake them with the authentic heresies manifest and formal, the very same shrewd device Swenin's Roncalli, then adopted and used by their successors Montini, Woltlia, and Ratzinger, has been able to formulate in refined and surreptitious way. The seven heretical elements here to do with seven crucial spheres of faith, each one more cardinal and decisive than the other. The first one has to do with Christ's regality over the world and the public right that emanates from it, which has to be acknowledged to the Catholic Church, Materet Magistra of the world. The second has to do with the public rights of the Catholic Church, the only depository of the triune God's revelation, which are equated to those of the thousands of falsities. The third has to do with the spurious ecumenism which derives from it. The fourth has to do with religious freedom. The fifth has to do with ecclesiology. The sixth has to do with matrimonial morals and, in general, with sexual morals and what derives from it. The seventh has to do with the notion of the Mass and the liturgical acts that derive from it. In particular, the second heretical element won't be solved until a pope doesn't establish firmly with a locutio ex cathedra the principle according to which, if God is not triune, he even isn't, as I argued in my Mystery of the Blindfolded Temple, completely revised in 2011. We must then add to these seven serious fields of heresy of the Church, begotten and well-fed by the Council, those whose eloquent expansion has been allowed and caused by the very same council just because of the fatal embrace between the conciliar church and the wicked and atheistic historicism. Of the first row of the latter, we find the hereticalities that emerge from the books of Monsignor Joseph Ratzinger, especially Introduction to Christianity, and then from his encyclicals written in his capacity as Roman pontiff. As I point out in at The Heart of Ratzinger, At the Heart of the World, whose completely revised version, bearing the new title, At the Heart of Ratzinger, He is the Pope, Not the Other, will be published in September. So we will also understand the reasons why the Argentine is called like that. Let's be patient. What to do in order to let the dogma come back, that is, to lead the church again to Christ. It is necessary that everyone who is now participating to the ongoing debate become well aware of the fact that up to now, since 60 years ago, there hasn't been a single prelate who has been willing to question the Second Vatican Council in the due terms. That is both in its formal wholeness and in each one of the heretical elements that infest it, which is to say at least in the seven points indicated here, accepted, as is known in their times, the bishops Lefebvre and de Castro-Meyer, although they had not been able to gather the needed support to reject, first of all, precisely the form with which the council had been opened, since at that time the formal issue had not even come up. Up to now, I insist, all the bishops, cardinals, and prefects of the Holy Roman Church, 
prone to the directives of the aforementioned popes, have neither considered the extremely clear linguistic aspects that are here once more identified in their most blatant evidence, nor especially the severe admonition shot with a flamethrower in his times and forever by St. Paul. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let that one be accursed. As we have said before, and now I say again, if anyone preaches to you a gospel other than the one that you received, let that one be accursed. See Galatians chapter 1, verses 8-9. to Now at last a courageous man has taken the field. However, it is necessary for everyone to be perfectly aware of the true issues at stake. Who are the real fighters? Why are they fighting? With which weapons, and finally, with which goals they are doing it? It is the war of the forms, or in other words, it is the war of the flesh against the spirit of the world against Christ. Enough with the political jargon, enough with duplicity, enough with the underwater navigation. The right start has been given by Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano, former apostolic nuncio to the United States, on the 4th of July, to John Henry Wesson, director of LifeSite News. Quote, Anyone with common sense can see that it is an absurdity to want to interpret a council, since it is and ought to be a clear and unequivoc- univo- unequivocal norm of faith and morals. Secondarily, it is a magisterial act raises serious and reasoned doubt arguments that it may be lacking in doctrinal coherence with magisterial acts that have preceded it, it is evident that the condemnation of a single heterodox point in any case discredits the entire document. If we add to this the fact that the errors formulated or left obliquely to be understood between the lines are not limited to one or two cases, and that the errors affirmed correspond conversely to an enormous mass of truths that are not confirmed, we can ask ourselves whether it may be right to expunge the last assembly from the catalog of canonical councils. The sentence will be issued by history and by the census fide of the Christian people, even before it is given by an official document. End quote. This would require providential sensibilization of all the cardinals and bishops of the church, starting from refined and committed cardinals such as Brandmuller, who amending the various flaws in the Monsignor Bishop from Kazakhstan's words, but the doctrinal corrections made by the magisterium throughout history has started showing again what was expected by him, since his solidity as a historian is beyond dispute. Good. It would now be proper that all the great prelates of the church become aware of the fact that it is about time to correct form, language, and doctrines generated by the Second Vatican Council, and that if the Lord permitted us to arrive at this point without anyone making these due corrections, it is only because it was necessary for them to open their eyes, and after all of them fell into the trap they refused to see, because they loved it with their own hearts, prepared it with their own hands, fell into it with their own feet, and realize what they then defended tooth and nail wasn't anything but an enormous, seducing, enchanted spell, which hid a great hole from which, had it not been for the infinite mercifulness of God, nobody would have been able to come out. Call it as you wish. I believe I know its name. A simple proposal. Finally, to keep on talking about the great, venerable old man, I would suggest not to sadden the debater with darts such as Redaily detests Ratzinger, which not only degrade the arguments by shifting them to an emotive and childish plan, but also forget that, that not even the church judges about the inner thoughts of men. And neque ecclesia means that it is absolutely not fair to judge the feelings present in the heart of a man. Neither a spiritual director, where he, this very same pope, could do it, and that's really saying something. It would be rather proper if the participants of the debates, rather than judged so harshly, showed to have a little bit of knowledge on the matter. In this case, on my works about the August subject, whom we are talking about, in order to be able to demonstrate to have read at least the final paragraphs 
of my book on Ratzinger, or at least its titles, or at least the titles of its supplementary booklets, the second of which goes straight to the point. Loving Ratzinger, I save him, you slay him. Don't do it, but rather let's save him together. Maybe not everybody understood it, but this is the only goal that I resolved to reach three years ago. Would you like to take a try? Signed, Enrico Maria Redeli.